0: Good morning and welcome to Wave Makers with Janet and Tom, a weekly conversation with people making a difference in the Tampa Bay region. I'm Janet.
1: And I'm Tom.
0: And answering phones for us today is Lightning Sees It. Season ticket holder, John Dunn. If you want to talk to John about hockey or join our conversation today, call us at 813-239-9663. John, lightning season ticket holder, will get you through to us. You can also email us at dj at wmnf.org or text us at 813 433 0885. Today's guest is Tom Gribben, who's been a fixture in the St. Petersburg entertainment world for more than 40 years. He was the co-founder of the Coconuts Comedy Club chain in the 1980s and the front man for the Saltwater Cowboys, a band that played from the Pinellas County beaches to Wembley Stadium.
1: He counts among his close friends, Jimmy Buffett and the late, great John Prine. He moved from making music to promoting and producing it, becoming vice president of Big Three Entertainment, a St. Petersburg record label owned by Bill Edwards. He then helped Edwards take the Mahaffey Theater into a new era. Now he's given up the Mahaffey for a new gig, author. His first novel is The Last Florida Boy. It was published last year by St. Petersburg Press, and he's got some good big plans for that book that we'll be talking about.
2: Welcome, Tom. Hey, it's good to be here. I, uh, I've i been coming to w- WMNF uh, since the beginning, 40-something years ago. And it's great to be back in the studio. It's been a few years, but it brings back a lot of memories. I'm
1: glad you're back. You know, when I first heard that you were writing a book, I just assumed it was going to be a memoir because you've led such a rich and interesting and varied life. But it turns out you've written a novel, The Florida Last Florida Boy,
2: Yes, it's, it's fiction. Uh, the, it's fiction. The story of my life will be coming later. You
1: know? <laughs> and Although do, there's some of your life one, in this book, let's face it.
2: Uh, yes, the, it's the, uh, the romance is in the mystery.
1: Yes. <laughs> so h- how did you come to write this novel?
2: Well, uh, I, I don't know what prompts someone to write a book. Uh, if you know, When I decided I want to write a novel, uh, I, I, I needed something to base it on, and I took a song... That I wrote with one of the, my most favorite people that I've met in the music industry, uh, Mark Koopman He was an original band uh, mate of mine, and uh, we wrote this song together. Maybe tomorrow, maybe tonight, and it was on the first record. And so I took that as an outline. Uh, you know, a, a song is like a, a picture; it's, it's three and a half minutes, four minutes inside a frame, whereas a book is, is much more fleshed out.
0: Let's let's. Turn that song on let's listen to that tune. Okay. We got it here. Cuba. This is
2: the outline for the book what really? year is this coming? Uh eighty one. Okay.
3: The wind is blowing, the trees are bent the birds are flying, the clouds are rolling. First grade. been
1: That's a heck of a harmonica player there.
2: Yeah, uh, you know, at the beginning of the show, you said that I was a good friend of Jimmy Buffett's. He's not really a good friend. <clears throat> I met him during those days, and, and uh, during that period of time, I hung out with him a lot. Uh, John Prine is a dear friend, and uh, it, I think about him often. Not bad. But that particular song, uh, that is Fingers, Fingers Taylor from Jimmy's band playing the harmonica. When we went up to record this up in Nashville, the, the album, uh, the half the band was the Coral Reefer band, and the other half is a band uh, was the Don Williams band, hmm. and Dave Williamson uh, produced the, this and like put all the guys together, um, and and everybody had a lot of enthusiasm for this project, and Fingers wanted to be take part, and uh, Harry Daly, the bass player, he's he's uh, Buffett's band as well, Coral Reefers, and uh, so Fingers showed up at the studio that day because because everybody was sort of really into it, and I was excited that. They were so into it. Fing wanted to play on it, but he showed up and he was a mess, and he couldn't play, and he was sort of getting in the way. And Dave and the guys just sent him home, and so and we didn't hear from him. And about three days later, he came back all all rested and sober, and he just showed up and and we put him on this uh, uh, song because it, it it really needed that up front. We didn't mm-hmm. expect to have a harmonica solo on it. We were going to put a little guitar solo on there, but he was in the booth. And David said, "Just play through the whole song," and he played through it. And when he did that solo, we all looked at each other like, "Oh yeah, that's it." It, mm-hmm. it was one take. It was beautiful. And then when Jimmy heard it later, he said, "Tom, how did you get him to do that?"
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, getting sobered up probably helped a yeah, little bit. A little rest. But let's talk about the book. Um, it's 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 a, a, a story of, of yesterday, Florida, in some ways, right? And it's it's about uh, a pot runner.
2: Yeah, I mean the the pot adventures in there. Uh, first of all, they're all the they look like I, I took the nonviolent, the amateur stuff, the guys that I knew who were doing this. Mm-hmm. The, these weren't uh, really even criminals in my mind, um, and it was those were sort of fun days. And people who who knew that era can can, can make the difference between that and gangs and violence mm-hmm. and all that. So, but really, the pot and the comedy both in the book are vehicles. For the real message here is about, one, it's about friendships and loyalties and how they work out in life under stress. But the big one is, you know, it starts out, the book starts out after the the prologue stating that, you know, we're, we're given a certain name at birth. And then later on uh, in primitive societies, you earned a name, you know, like the, an Indian boy who was born uh, in the wilderness or in the trees as they translated his name. Later, he went on a vision quest or something mm-hmm. like and, and was given another name crazy horse and so that's how you uh, basically sometimes you're forced to into to, into a new identity and you either choose to embrace that and make yourself that or you stumble back to your old ways and that and the book is a lot about that and i use the the pot and the comedy uh, as vehicles to get to that i mean you even like marion morrison who you know had big dreams of Playing football, who got injured and lost his scholarship mm-hmm. at Southern Cal, became John Wayne, and and now now we think of him of that, and he embraced whatever that was to mm-hmm. become that character. So the guy in this book, uh, he is uh, he is forced into some sort of identity crisis like this. I know this sounds heavy because the book's a lot more fun than that. <laughs> it,
1: it's a, it, it is a light and e- quick read, I have to say. I appreciate that. Yeah, and, uh, it, 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 it moves like... right along.
2: <laughs> I, I'm getting really philosophical because when you get into this thing, you, you know, you're know, you writing this for months and months and months, and uh, so you get into the character, and it's a lot more phys- uh, psychological talking mm-hmm. about it than it is in the fun of the book. It's a lot of fun, um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a journey of ups and downs. And it's back in the time, uh, you know, when uh, the names might be changed, but no one is innocent.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, of course, uh, as we discussed uh, uh, previously, the um, marijuana business is now essentially legal in many ways. and they're, They're growing weed in Apollo Beach, and, you know, those innocent days of taking a shrimper to Jamaica and loading them up and bringing them back to Florida, I guess, are pretty much gone.
2: I know, but you know the people in the business now. This is really funny. If you go to one of those stores, my son lives in Colorado, so I'm out there a lot. And, and in there's Colorado, there's those pot stores up and down the street out mm-hmm. there. And when you go in there and you talk to them, they are fascinated by the old tales. They've they've grown up in a world where it's basically legal, so they're fascinated by these old tales. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they don't want to hear about Pablo Escobar or anything, but these old tales of the Florida Boys you know, taking their boats out and coming in, you know, their dads and them coming in. They they love the stories because yeah. it, it, they, they can't believe it, it was that bad.
1: And you heard some good stories during a famous trial called the Steen Hatchie 7, right? Yeah,
2: I was in law school in Gainesville, and uh, those guys were busted in Hatchie, but the, the trial was held in Gainesville, and you, out of the seven, I think five or six of them were all, you know, St. Pete Beach Boys, and I grew up with them. I played... Uh, little league baseball with a couple of them, and and uh, you know I knew them, so I was fascinated. So I went out to the trial every day, and uh,
0: what was the trial?
2: It was called the Steen Hatchy Seven, and trial they were
0: being tried for, for
2: a big marijuana conspiracy. They they brought in tons of pot over on by Steen mm-hmm. uh, on the and that
0: of, would have been West in like Florida. the mid seventies or
2: yeah, uh, yeah probably early seventies, mm-hmm. and they were t-
1: getting it from Jamaica. Or Columbia? or
2: not quite sure. I think they got it all from Jamaica, uh, from what Steve Lamb told me. Yeah, Steve was one of the guys, and he he's written a book too about his smuggling days. Um, and so I le- I, le- I let them tell those stories. My book isn't about their stories, but I was I was motivated by going to the trial every day. I went actually to see a couple of my buddies and find out what's going to happen. <laughs> but I wanted this. I wanted to meet their lawyer. Uh, four of them were represented by the same guy, a guy named Percy Foreman, who at the time covered Time magazine. He was like the hotshot lawyer. He was a little past his days the trial. I was disappointed mm-hmm. when I met him because he's fallen asleep at the trial and everything. But every night, you know, Steve would go, with, we'd all go out, the, all the defendants, and we'd all go out to dinner and, and with the lawyers. And, and so I hung around and, and watched the whole trial. And I was mesmerized by, as the evidence each day unraveled. I was thinking to myself, "Yeah, I'm in law school, you know," and I'm going, "This isn't even really a crime to me. I mean, this is this is uh, adventurous." <laughs> <laughs> of course, they all got convicted, but in those days, you know, they were three and a half years; they were out, you know. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was it was it put a seed in my mind about you know, there's a story to tell here. But well, that
0: was almost fifty years before you started writing the book.
2: No, yeah, it was, not 50 well, the, years, but was, I, I've been writing this book over 25 years. Yeah. I've been I've been putting this thing together um, for a long time.
1: And I mean, it you was, started, you mean the first words, or you wrote the first words that long ago?
2: And I just I, kept, kept going back to it? I probably started the book in, you know, what? 1990 or whatever I and mean, that's well the that's song years the ago. song
0: that you wrote started the book right that
2: well the song or the, the song I wrote w- with Mark
0: yeah um, that we just played I mean you were the, saying that that basically encapsulates the book and you wrote when did well,
2: that I, that 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 song uh, Mark and I wrote in uh uh in the late 70s yeah and uh I, I remember he he brought the first fragment of the song to me and I was going oh this is great and then you know how you write songs, you kind of collaborate, and, and we made it the story of this, these guys in John's Pass, and there's some references to the guys lying at the bar, lying about who they really are, and so I took that song, and then and then about 30 years ago, I started the book, and, uh, and I've been, you know, chewing on it and writing it, and uh, finally, during the pandemic, we had that, you know, the quarantine, I was home, and I wanted to be productive, so I said, I'm going to put all of this together, and I'm going to finish, I'm going to get all these writings together and finish it.
1: Another good thing to come out of the pandemic.
2: Exactly. It would have never happened if not.
0: Um, If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Wavemakers on WMNF with Janet and Tom, and our guest today is Tom Gribben. Um, He's a a longtime fixture in the St. Petersburg um, entertainment world. Um, And if you'd like to join the conversation or share some of your memories of St. Pete Coconuts Comedy Club and the Saltwater Cowboys, give us a call at 813-239-9663 or send us an email to dj at wmnf.org. We do have an email from DeMarco who responded when we were playing the song he says, I could tell right away who was playing that harp. His playing is as unique as Stevie Wonder It immediately reminded me of this song. And he sent us a YouTube link to Biloxi, which is a... Biloxi. Yeah, uh, Jimmy, Biloxi, Bo- Jimmy Buffett song. Biloxi. Yeah. Yeah.
2: That's great. He's got a good ear. You got a good ear, buddy. Very good
1: ear. <laughs> and so now what are your plans for this book? I understand you've got some deals working.
2: Well, I am... The the plan right now, obviously, I'm doing the, the touring it and doing some book signings and, and all that sort of thing. And... um uh I know that uh, – shout out to Jim Mayer, who's a Buffett's a bass player, who got it and loved it and just helped me on it. He gave a copy to
1: Jimmy a couple of weeks ago. Kind of oh, waiting, that's cool. Kind of waiting to hear what he has to say. But and, that, and, 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 and you have a section in the book about Jimmy Buffett. Yes, yes. And you talk about – or at least your main character talks about how uh, uh, there were a lot of, uh, let's say, pot smugglers who – Found Jimmy Buffett to to be a kindred spirit. In the
2: beginning, you know, he sort of embraced that lifestyle. I mean, it was, uh, you know, if you, some of the lines of his song, songs I I used to. um, well, yeah. my, rule my world from a payphone. You know, let's see, there were no cell phones back then. These guys right. making new deals on the payphone all day. And he had, had those, the, you know, I, I've done a bit of smuggling, that kind of thing. It was all It was all fun. I mean, I can't speak to what, what Jimmy did or didn't do. I mean, he was a musician, but I'm, I'm sure he knew a lot of these guys. And they, and they embraced it. And it, it, at some point... I think he he turned away from that, uh, but you know I, I can't speak for him. But I didn't see it as much in his in his music anymore because the business got ugly. And and I'm try, I try to capture that in the book. Yep. And, uh, and everything that I've I've written in there is uh, my take on the era, you know. And uh, but uh, th- they were fun days. What can I say? I'll tell We've you. We've
0: got a little clip from uh, let's play a little bit of that Jimmy Buffett song that
2: you. Oh yeah, Havana have a daydream. I mean, this is all
3: about...
0: Fastest trash in Ecuador
3: Bought a good suit of
0: clothes Yeah, you, you said that this song was something that was relevant to the book, that it evoked the book. Tell us well, about yeah. that. I mean,
2: well, yeah, the lyrics of the song, you know... Huh? Waiting for
3: some mystery man
2: Waiting for a mystery man To pay him for his time And then the next line
3: Thinking about so
2: these are the days you know that he wrote songs like this and of course all the local florida boys i mean they loved them they embraced them and uh and and he liked them i mean the name of his band is the coral reefer band yeah let's right it. He's, not, he's not hiding
1: it
0: um but, we we've got a caller if you don't mind we've got um craig in sarasota who wants to um say something to tom gribbon so craig you're on the line what's on your mind
1: Enjoying listening to the story. Uh, just wanted to say, Tom, I remember you and your saltwater cowboys growing up in St. Pete. I, I grew up there in the 70s and 80s and
2: used to hear your music.
1: And it's so cool that you've written a book about uh, some of your life experience. What's the name of the book again? Please.
2: It's called The Last Florida Boy. Uh, it's fiction, but you might recognize some of the characters, Craig. <laughs> the fact oh, that uh, you lived through the same era as me and that we're still alive—you
1: know—kudos <laughs> to you, buddy. <laughs> exactly, The Last Florida Boys. I'll remember that. Yeah, I remember seeing your name on the on the marquees out in uh, Treasure Island, and uh, just just really enjoyed your music growing up. And uh, I'm going to look for your book and. Uh, I appreciate what
2: you're doing. I appreciate it. I mean, you can go to thelastforwardboy.com or Amazon or, you know, the bookstores. It's all around. But, hey, I appreciate you calling in.
0: Thanks. Thanks for calling in, Craig.
1: Well, let's talk about Southwater Cowboys because, uh, let's face it, you were a lawyer. Uh, you you gave up a career as a lawyer in Miami, correct?
2: Or- I was in a big firm in Miami, sort of high-level practice of law. And it, was, it, was, it was fun. I, I didn't leave it because I didn't like it, but I started um, –
1: you had two cases or four cases go to the Supreme Court, right?
2: Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, w- once I had the first one, then the ones, the rest of them that came to the firm, since I was then a member of the Supreme Court bar, they were kicked over to Make me. Make Tom do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let him handle it. It was a unique experience. And then when I left Miami and came up here, I started playing just with friends. Uh, one, like I keep referring to, it's like my favorite musical character of all time was this Mark Hoopenbecker. And we started, we put together this little band along with my oldest friend in the world who started Coconuts Comedy Club with me, Bob Shoemaker. And we started playing and we, we I used to fly up from Miami to make 25 bucks uh, on a gig up here. And then we decided, you know, we got some interest in it and uh, I moved up here um, and didn't think I was going to make any money playing music at $25 a time. So I opened the law practice. But, you know, we put the first record out, and, and, and it took off. And so I was able to <laughs> walk away from the law practice and uh, go out and live the rock star life for a number of years. It was a lot of fun.
1: And you did. I mean, you toured Europe, right? You're, yeah, we toured. Ta- we, tell us about that first record and how we did. And, we uh, did well.
2: Um, you know, we, uh, we had played once with the original band with Mark and Bob and everything over in uh, at this uh, showcase club in London, Dingwalls, and... Uh, when we went back to, to our our publicist over there, put together, helped us put together the tour. And we got at, at, at Wembley, at, at Wembley Arena, they had this uh, uh, four-day country music festival. And so we got on that bill, and that was a big deal. And then when the, uh, the uh, album was released, you know, it took off because... One of the songs on the album was The Guns of Brixton, which is a Clash song from their London Calling album. We did yeah. a we did a, a country version, put these Irish fiddles on it and everything. And then three days after it was released in the BBC, BBC One, they had the big riots in Brixton. I, I didn't know where Brixton mm-hmm. it, it's a, was a Jamaican ghetto in South London at the time. Now it costs a million dollars for an apartment there. But at uh, those days, uh, there's a lot of unrest. And uh, when I first heard the song when The Clash did it, it was uh, sounded like a Jesse James song, the guns of Johnson County. I subsequently learned Brixton was a you know,
0: mm-hmm. it
2: was like a, a, a ghetto, uh, and so anyway, they had these big riots in about three days after my record was released. It was I probably played as a curiosity at first because it's Clash, you know, they were big, and here's this sort of countryish Florida guy playing, and uh, and so they played the song, and then the riot started, unrelated to the song. Um, <laughs> the largest riot since World War II they told me and it was all in the papers front page and the BBC banned the record playing of the record as inflammatory
1: wow that's the best publicity you can ask for it was
2: unbelievable so BBC banned it but the independent stations around the country um, the the indie stations picked it up because of that and exploded and and it turned a record into the top 10 and uh, when we arrived uh, it was it was quite a scene a lot of press and when we after we played Wembley, one of the first gig, you know, we went on like a, a two and a half week, three week tour of the rest of the country. And uh, when we we opened up in this uh, at, at Dingwalls at the Showcase Club, and I look out in the crowd, and all four members of the class were in the crowd. They wanted to see if we could play it live.
0: Wow! And
2: so when we played it, Joe Strummer gave me the big thumbs up and like gave me a wink. We met him afterwards. It went out that they they were doing a, a two night show at the Big Lyceum and invited us out. Took some pictures that wound up into the Melody Maker and the New Musical Express, you know, they're, they're Rolling mm-hmm. Stone. And it just took off from there. And, uh, and and I became friends with Joe after that. And it was funny because when you think of Joe Strummer, you think of this angry punk. But his favorite music was sitting around the campfire uh, playing guitar, you know, Strummer, Strummer, Joe Strummer. Uh, and, okay, but but what he'd rather do is sit around, he'd sit around in a parking lot with a, you know, light up a, a barrel of wood on fire. And sit around and sing. And so we we bonded over that. Um, And uh, it was was just a really interesting thing to find out because I I, I always pictured him as this rebel rocker, you know, Sandinista, you know, guy. But uh, he was actually
1: pretty sweetheart.
0: So,
2: how
1: long did the. Go go ahead, Janet.
0: Let's play. uh, I want to play another song. Let's play another song that we got queued up and you can tell us about it. Let's see.
2: Oh Lord, this one. This is the first country reggae song. Right. I'm told, ever written. The reggae intro. The guy in the slide guitar is Danny Flowers, who wrote Living Until Tulsa Time.
0: Oh,
3: wow. And, uh,
2: and a number of other great songs.
3: <laughs> was a captain, son. he liked to roll. So
2: we've got these country Caribbean guys playing He's reggae. The rig, down,
0: 301, yeah, roll. down 301. Johnny roll. Johnny roll. Johnny roll. Johnny
3: roll. Johnny roll. Johnny roll. Johnny roll. Funny, huh?
2: Yeah. So I, re- I remember, um, you know, this song is a country reggae song. And I remember when the album came out, trying to get it played in America, I couldn't get it, you know, they couldn't get it done. It wasn't, wasn't on the country stations, they wouldn't get it done. But my original drummer in the band, who was only with me for like a, a month or so before I got the great Tom Kennedy, but uh, Jim Beach, he uh, went off to, to play with the Bellamy brothers. And he brought them this tape of the song. And they were going, yeah, we're a Florida band like Tom, and we're we're not in Nashville, and we're caught between Nashville and the islands. And you know, when when I got, wrote this song, this was the time I was down in the islands a lot. You go down to the Cayman Islands, and all those boats coming out of Galveston, Texas, are coming through the islands. So even the local islander guys are playing some cross between calypso and country, or reggae and country. And and I I that's where the the, the song germinated from. And so I when when the song was written, so the Bellamy brothers. Got this song and they they, they love the idea and they wrote "Get into Reggae Cowboy." You remember that song? That hit the top forty in country country mm-hmm. record uh, music, or radio. And uh, I got really angry that they, you know the, <laughs> one night I, Billboard used to have all the list of all the program directors around the country. And I had a few Jack Daniels and I would call up and yell <laughs> at the program directors. And they you know they apologize. They they didn't even yell at me back. They were just going, "Hey, we didn't even know who you were. You know, you were just ahead of your time. We knew the Bellamy Brothers." And uh not that I dislike their song. I, I'm, you know, I love to be copied.
1: <laughs> you were definitely ahead of your time, no question about it.
2: And so I look back at that song with the, yeah, that was great. And and so um how
1: long did you tour with the Saltwater Cowboys?
2: Well, we were together uh, you know, probably uh 6 or 7 years, I guess. 6 6 years uh, of of really, you know, working it hard and uh put out two albums. Put out two records, did a lot of touring. Um
1: by the way, the record we played
2: earlier was vinyl. Just yeah, yeah. I saw that. that. <laughs> I love that you have that in the uh, in your in the WMNF
0: archives. Yeah, We've got, the got the it. Our, our record library. We've got music library. We have both of your albums are in there.
2: I remember coming over here and playing those when they were fresh at WMNF. <laughs> and, and it now. still
0: sounds good.
1: Yeah. Well. So yeah. what did you do after that? What? And actually, how do you? At some point, you go. Okay, let's do something else. What what, what happened?
2: There? Well, what ha- it 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 just flowed into it. Really, I started. I I was playing, still playing, realizing this isn't going to go on forever, you know. And uh, so I started promoting shows uh, with my partner Bob, and also you know keep is uh, Rob Douglas, who books all the stuff at Tennis ah. Landing, and you mm-hmm. know Rob. He's just uh, we've been old friends, and he's just a joy. Still, he, he's he's yeah. like Hoopenacker. They're still. Their, their minds are still back there, you know.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I, I've grown old, but they haven't. <laughs> so anyway, uh, uh, we started promoting shows, and we were the first people to bring in Robert Cray to this town. His first concert here was one of ours. Los Lobos, Righteous mm. Brothers, Jerry Jeff Walker, Roger McGuinn. You know, we did a lot of these shows. And those
1: shows were being uh, done at uh, a little place in Pinellas, right? Well,
2: it was actually a big place. It was the old Las Fontanas Grill, that became the Turtle Club or something like that, but it was a it was a a restaurant. But they had this giant ballroom attached. It was gorgeous. It was really a, like a concert room, and so we used it to do these shows, and uh, it was fun. And then I was still playing, so sometimes I'd open the shows. Um, we opened we opened for Roger McGuinn. <laughs> he uh, he you know he does that song. He had that song on his record, Jolly Roger, mm-hmm. and we we had my own take on it. We played it. And Roger just, you know, he had t- he confessed to me that he stopped playing the song because, uh, you know, he was, became a real Christian and, and you know, he thought it was uh, not, uh, it didn't fit into that. I, and I said, I didn't see that. They said, it's a pirate song, yeah, but it's not. I thought it was one of the best songs he'd ever written. And and he started playing it again. If you go out to hear him now, he, he's not adverse to playing it. But uh, he was moved by our rendition of it. And, of course, you know, Roger lived in town at the time, so I got to know him a lot better. Um uh, He's a, just just an ethereal guy, you know. Yeah, but
1: you moved from uh, promoting shows. Uh, right, well, what happened was we,
2: you know, in the old days, the sound equipment was different than it is now where you could just plug in another band, and so if you have an opening band, then you have to change all the knobs for the headlining, so we started using comics to open the show, so they, they'd have one, one channel. Give them $25 for 20 minutes, you know, and we felt a little guilty because it, it, you know, it wasn't a lot of money, and... Uh, there was this uh, a loft in uh, up there where they where the restaurant stored all the tables and chairs, and uh, my, my partner Bob goes, hey, well let's just rearrange those tables and we'll put a mic up there, and after the thing we'll we'll start a comedy, let the comedians make some money, and so for two bucks after the show people could go up and and see the comedy shows. Well they were packed, and in the end you know how it is with promoting shows you can. Make five grand one day and lose six grand the right. next day. But the comedy was so uh, lucrative; it was it was really selling. So when the restaurant closed, uh, we opened Coconut's Comedy Club. We opened it actually there, but it was on a. But we got serious about it. I went out to the beach and opened it that that first club there, St Pete Beach. St Pete, Pete Beach at the
1: Hojos, right?
2: At the Howard Johnsons. Yeah, and it just took off. Now you got to understand, uh, Tom. These are the days that. Before HBO and, and Comedy Central and all that. If you wanted to see a comic, you had to come out to these shows. And I, I'm capturing that in the book. It's that, 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 the comedy in the book is from 80s. It's before, you know.
1: Right. So the main character of the book, and I don't want to have any spoilers here, but yeah. uh, he ends up on the, the Coconuts uh, circuit in Florida.
2: Right, and I I mimic that from you know from our one club. It was so popular that we started spreading out. I mean, the the Marriott who owned the Howard Johnsons came to us and they, they saw they came and did a little review of this once mm-hmm. dead bar. Now it's packed, and they said, "Listen, we have a couple other places down in Miami. Would you?" So we went down there and opened them, and they, that led to you know. uh it's Jacksonville, Saint mm-hmm. Augustine, Fort Myers, Sarasota. You know, we at Key West, it, it, and then it started spreading around the country and around the world. We we're down in the islands: Saint Martin, wow. the Caymans, Saint Thomas, uh, London, L.A., Cape Cod. Uh, you know, we just how many was, did
1: you end up having?
2: Well, over the period of time, not all going at the same time. We looked at it uh, a couple of months ago. And we had over a hundred clubs that we had opened. Wow. Uh, at, not all going at the same time. We always had 25 or 30 going at the same time. And and funny stories from those days. You, you couldn't do that anymore because you, it, the comedy is too accessible on TV, streaming, uh, you know. But those are really fun days. But and you so, still
1: have one in St. Pete Beach.
2: Yeah, yeah. And Bob Shoemaker's out there. Tell him tell him, WMNF sent you. Yep. He, he, he'll <laughs> give you a two-for-one out there. All right. Did uh, you hear
0: that, listeners? <laughs>
2: <laughs> but uh, he's still running that club. Uh, I'm not involved in it anymore, um. Except that you know he and I—he's my oldest friend.
0: So. But a lot of what you gleaned from that time is in the book. I mean, you ta- yes. you have insights into the world of comedy, which actually goes back to what you're saying about um, changing identities. That the, uh, there's a—I think Tom's going to find the line in there where you talk about going from being a funny man to a comic.
2: Right. There's exactly. a there's a big difference between being a funny guy and a comic, and uh, and because comics are professional. Mm-hmm. And what you have to do, you get up on stage, and, and as soon as you get on stage, you assume that identity. Whether you change your name or not, doesn't really make any difference. You become that person. And we've learned over time, we've had like uh, uh, movie casting directors contact us mm-hmm. asking for comics, because most actors, you know, they're waiters or something else, and so they don't, they don't get a lot of stage time. Where comedians are on the stage all the time and they're used to assuming an identity, which is their own. And so when when movie directors are looking, they, they, there was a whole period of time they would want comics because mm-hmm. they were experienced at that changeover. As opposed to someone who went to acting school and then been uh, you know waiting tables and they get their auditions. Certainly that's a way to go too, but a, a comedy was a good uh, avenue to, to get yourself into a movie.
1: And you were not having... A list comedians on this uh, at at your clubs, right? You you couldn't really afford to have Robin Williams or someone like well, that. Well,
2: that, that's right. But these guys were the they were up and coming. We went through our old boards and all our clubs, and we found Ray Romano from Everybody Loves Raymond, John Stewart, uh, Sam Kinnison. Huh. You know, all the, there were people that came up. We had a bar back at our original club at the Hojo's. There, Tom, the guy. Getting the ice and everything. Yep. And so we had open mic night, and he'd go up and do open mic, and he did one minute, and he did two minutes, and he did three minutes. And he was hilarious. He was a barback. He was hilarious, and he decided, well, I'm going to go to New York. And so we called up, and we made some, um, I should have signed him up is what I should have done. It was Jimmy Brewer from Saturday Night Live. Yeah. He turned into, you know, starting a bar back in our club to being, you know. It's hard to talk to Jimmy now. That's, He's way that, above that's us. That's funny.
1: Yeah, you, you're, your main character in the book uh, uh, writes, the, the comedy scene was a stimulating world of lovable lunatics. Yes, it still is. And and, and there's a good section in the book uh, about how to deal with hecklers, which I hadn't really thought about. But every comedian apparently needs a bag of tricks to deal they with They need a
2: bag of tricks. And it's funny. Because uh, you know, and it differs in each country. It's funny they, they they deal with them differently in England than they do here. And uh, uh, but yeah, a comic has to have a good comeback because a heckler will ruin your show. You can have a really great thing going if you don't know how to deal with it. Either enga- if they're soft hecklers, you can kind of engage them, and it gets everybody involved. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's just a belligerent drunk or something like that, and you really have to shut what, them down. How
0: do they deal with it in England? I'm just curious. <laughs> well, they have, they have
2: different lines. There's some stock lines okay. here where they go, you know, somebody's bothered, and finally the comedian gets angry, and he goes, look, I don't come to where you work and, you know, knock mm-hmm. the French fries out of your hand. You know, right. that kind of thing. Um, and, and in England, they have a, a, a different line to deal okay. with it, you know, and it's funny. Uh, uh,
0: We've got um, a caller on the line. We've got... Um, Johnny, you're on the line. Um, what's on your mind?
3: Hey, I just wanted to comment about the book. Okay. It's interesting.
1: I found a signed copy at a yard sale out here in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> I was interested in the book. Uh, I can relate to it. Um, the, I bet you can uh, in Oregon, huh? Yeah. The early part of the book where there's a standoff with the Cuban military and the, um, that yeah. was quite um, shaky ground.
3: And I'm glad y'all got towed in by the coast guard. <laughs> Unfortunately, you lost all those bales of weed. One of those bales of weed would have saved the day for me. I could retire on it. And y'all lost sixty thousand pounds. Yeah, I mean
2: twenty thousand pounds. Okay. And it wasn't it wasn't me and Tom. It was uh, but but it is it, it, that that uh, story. It comes from a true actually it comes from a true story.
1: And so and just to for the just for the listeners, it involves a uh, shrimp boat loaded with a weed coming and, from Jamaica, yeah, coming from Jamaica, and you've got the Cuban coming and Navy in Cuban coming, waters, and you got the Coast Guard coming, coming in the, at the other the direction. Same time. <laughs> well, my mouth was watering during that part. Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> they didn't even search the ship when they brought you in, so that would have been a lifesaver. Just keeping all of that.
2: I hear you.
0: Well, thanks for the call, Johnny. Yeah. All the way from Oregon. Thanks for calling. I
2: can tell you read the book, buddy. <laughs> Later.
1: And if you want to call in and join our conversation, please dial 813-239-9663, and John Dunn will get you right through. You can also email us at dj at wmnf.org or text us at 813 433
0: You're listening to community-sponsored, commercial-free radio. We're powered by volunteers like me and listeners like you who support the station. You can show your support right now by going to WMNF.org and hitting the tip jar to make a donation. Um, We'll also be doing a pledge drive starting um, next Tuesday this time. Um, And keep us in mind, if you're enjoying the show, please consider making a donation, and we'll be right back.
3: WMNF commemorates Juneteenth at the Palladium Theatre In St. Pete on Saturday, June 18th With an array of black excellence Featuring spoken word poets, music from Soul Caravan Starring local artists and musical directors Kenny Walker and Vincent Sims Plus other special guests Expect the best renditions of Earth, Wind & Fire And a soul review all the while connecting with neighbors and friends Plus, tune in that week to 88.5 FM and the WMNF app to honor Juneteenth with special music, stories, and guests on air. For more information and to buy tickets, go to WMNF.org.
1: So, Tom, uh, back to hey, you. Hold on a second. I, right I got to comment
2: on, on John, Johnny's thing. First of all, you spent a lot of time going, I don't, spoiler alert, I don't want to do a spoiler alert. And Johnny's telling, the, <laughs> He's telling, telling the you what's happening with the Cubans <laughs> and everything. And also, um, I have to commend you. This is the first interview I've done, and we've gone, what, three-quarters of the interview, and you haven't asked me, did you do that did you, you know, and and he and and you can hear Johnny when y'all were when on that y'all did shrimp yeah. boat bring yeah. that pot in. I, I'm laughing because the book is written in first person, so it's the first thing everybody asks me, and I really, you know, it's it's uh, it's it's not even a question I want to answer because I think that the uh, the romance is in the mystery. And uh, but and so I have to commend you for not just opening the show as like were you on that shrimp boat were you on that plane? It really, it really,
1: and and hearing Johnny going, "Hey, when you all like it's the three of us?" <laughs> Well, you, you, you did base a lot of uh, the stories on real-life incidents and real-life people. Some are composites, you, right. e- and uh, etc., but you know, everybody who writes a novel draws from their own life experiences.
2: Hey, you write what you know. It's the same as a song. You exactly.
1: Know? So at some point, your comedy club uh, started to... Uh, you, you, you headed in a different direction. Tell us about that.
2: Well, the comedy clubs are going strong, and uh, I met Bill Edwards... Uh, when he was opening up his, you know, he's a mortgage guy and he started getting into the entertainment business. He had a great idea and he had, you know, he had the funds and everything like that. And, and I met him and, and he asked me to, uh, to join his team. And Which was
1: I, big three entertainment, Big three
2: entertainment. And, uh, you know, it, it, you know, he didn't have a studio at the time and he was tired of flying out to LA or going over to trans Transcon over in Orlando. So he said, I'm going to build my own. So we, I was aboard for that and we built the studio and he had the record label. And, uh, and uh, it was that—that's how I got involved with uh, with with Big Three.
1: And so, what were some of the bands you all worked with?
2: Well, we did. Uh, uh, we had three records with Cheap Trick. We did Rick Derringer. Uh, we did. We've we done a lot of bands that perhaps you didn't know that we started out with. Uh, it for Rivals and and um, I'm just trying to think of the many bands that we had. Um, uh, bands that we discovered and developed here. Uh, Bands that went out open for Britney Spears and stuff yeah,
0: like a, that. John
2: Cicada, didn't you do? it? Well, John cicada, we did John yeah. cicada, Yes. Yeah, so, so you remind me, you know as much. <laughs> and uh, you know, right in the beginning of this, in the first two years that I was working with Big Three, we went up to take our all-girl band. It was kind of like a white Destiny's Child up to New York to record. Uh, at the Hit Factory up there in, in in Spanish to do four songs for Telemundo,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, they they were they loved the girls but they wanted it in Spanish and one of the girls could uh, one of the three girls could sing in Spanish, so we went up there, <clears throat> we pulled in to town and uh, you know I was I was we, we got into town and I and I told everybody okay ne- we're going to relax today and tomorrow <laughs> I'm going to take all you girls up to the Windows on the World and the Trade Centers and we're going to have lunch you haven't been to the New York City and everything well I made a reservation for twelve thirty. And at uh, eight forty-seven, the first plane hit wow. the tower. Had we been, at, had they waited till lunch, we'd have been up there.
0: Wow! And we, wa-
2: we were in the Orleans and we watched the whole, uh, the whole thing. And, uh, and of course, the island. was <laughs> Of course, was sealed. you did. So, we-
0: but I'm just saying. <laughs> of you course, were you did. You <laughs> <laughs> were sort of like the Forrest Gump of exactly. Saint Petersburg. <laughs> I felt that way.
2: I, it was crazy. We were stuck on the island for days <laughs> and watched the whole thing, and I didn't know what to do, and and. Uh, Tour manager, Henry Smith, who is from here, um, he and I walked down. You, mean you can walk down here. It was the prettiest day I've ever seen in the city. Oh, yeah. And you walk down. The wind was blowing from the north, you know, blowing the debris south. And we walked down. But at certain point, it's just a mound of dust. And they had these, like, MASH units set up. And so mm-hmm. I didn't know what to do. We gave blood. And then we went back to the hotel and in New York uh, Manhattan was like a little city. I mean, it was like a little town. Everybody was really friendly and <laughs> it was and 7th Avenue was a walking mall. There were no cars. Right. So if if you've been up there, 7, 6th Avenue, 7th Avenue, there was there was no cars. It was just people walking. Every once in a while you'd see an EMT vehicle go go down and then everything coming up from the south was all covered with dust. Just crazy. But these are the kind of experiences, uh, you know, I I started out with with Big 3 and it's just been a lot of, you know, we've we did things in Monte Carlo, and you know, Bill had a had a real vision, and it was really fun just trying to hold on to it and, and uh, ride along with him. You know. Well, well
0: then it, of course you became involved with him and the redevelopment of downtown. So Baywalk yeah. was one of his projects, and how are you involved in Baywalk? I
2: wasn't involved. I, I was only involved in the entertainment wing of what Bill has a lot of stuff going on. The re- real estate, I wasn't involved with that. But when, anytime he had entertainment there, we he, you know he had. Always a bill, <laughs> he always liked to you know have entertainment attached of to course. no matter what yeah. business there is. So uh, you know it could be real estate, but he's going to have a band. So you know he, we did shows and bands and and, and, and you know guys on stilts and everything like that. So I got involved in all of that, the production of, of the bands at the Baywalk and all. that.
0: And then you were also very closely involved though with Mahaffey Theater. Right, and we have some breaking news on Mahaffey Theater. Would you like to break that well, news?
2: Well, I mean, it's, it was broken a couple of days ago. Uh, I put it out on my Facebook page. I've retired from the Mahaffey Theater. I, you know, we we took took it over in uh, in 2011. I was involved with the team that that, that got the bid, uh, and Bill asked me to stay on after we got the bid, and, and uh, Donald done some you know completely remodeled it. Um, you know, he he. I think it's a legacy pro- project for him, and it's a mm-hmm. good one. I, I was happy to be aboard, and
0: uh, you said even the dressing rooms you guys have, have redone everything from the these, floor to the ceiling.
2: Every the dressing rooms are beautiful. the 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 main dressing, the star dressing room, is like a an apartment with hmm. you know with a barber's chair and, and all the you know beauty stuff. And uh, I know when Steve Martin came in there when we had Steve Martin and Martin Short, uh, Steve walked over from the Vanoy and he came backstage and he saw the the dressing room for the first time and he goes. I'm not going back. He called Marty and said, get over here. We're just going to, we'll just rehearse in the dressing room. So he came over. He, he loved it. Uh, the the main dressing room, I mean, the large dressing room where all the dancers could be in, was taken, a shot was taken on the 50th anniversary of National Geographic and mm-hmm. was on the mid cover. I mean, the, what do you call it? Not the fold out, but, you know, the the, the, the mid to, the thing, double yeah, the page. the center fold The centerfold. Yeah. right. So, hey, we're on the center fold. Uh, <laughs> And, and, and so it was all these, like, ballerinas at uh, uh, all the windows, at uh, all the uh, oh. mirrors. And so it was, it was a, quite a, a beautiful um, restoration. And then, you know, we worked there, and, and uh, basically I feel like, you know, we've gotten through the pandemic and we're, we're starting to go again. I was contemplating retirement at the end of last year anyway, but I wasn't quite sure where we were. I wasn't quite sure if Bill needed me anymore or whatever. And so it's just a few days ago that um, I... You know, told you and uh, and made the announcement on Facebook that I'm retired. I'm obviously have a lot going on with the book. I have um, you know an opportunity uh, to to put it on you know Netflix or a, mm-hmm. a channel, and I have to work. The the presentation on that is uh, you know is, is quite extensive. It's going to have to put some time into it.
0: And then Mahaffey, we were talking about this also a little earlier. The um, when they first, when you all first redid it, you had a signature scent. You reopened That's it with a signature scent. That's funny that you remember scent.
2: that. Yeah. <laughs> well, one of the guys, you know, you know, Bill has spent a lot of time in Las Vegas, and and uh, he knows Steve Wynn, and and uh, you know the Bellagio. Those those casinos out there have their own scent. So Bill had somebody from that crew, make a signature scent for the Mahaffey, some tangerine, cinnamon, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. that mix was.
0: It's supposed to make you love everything you see there?
2: When I walked in there, I wanted to gamble. (laughs) (laughs) But what happened was, and it was great. It wasn't a complaint. People liked it. It was, you know, like they would like it at the Bellagio. They liked it. And then one day, the St. Pete Times wrote an article talking about the special scent that we had. And wouldn't you know... Two days later, somebody goes, oh, my allergies. You know, we started getting complaints. Right. So Bill said, oh, the heck with it. <laughs> well, it's funny.
0: We we did that at the, when I worked at the airport, we did that, developed a signature scent for the airport that's supposed to be calming for people who are traveling. So all you out there, if you don't know why you love the airport so much, it might be from that signature scent or the slow, uh, <laughs> short TSA times. Um, so you were, you know, grew up in St. Pete or in the St. Pete area. Yeah, and, I did. Yeah. And you participated in its transformation in the last 10 years what do you think what do you see what do you like the direction par- saint pete has gone Did i you-
2: have participated since the early 60s i i remember when it was all green benches right. i remember when 34th street was the hot spot and there was wolfies and there was the, all the stores that go shopping and the movie theaters and the rocking chair theaters that was you
1: probably me. knew jack kerouac too so yeah
2: <laughs> no, just kidding <laughs> I would like to, have, but did uh, but so I've watched it develop, and now with the new city, I'm one of those guys that really like what's going on in Saint Pete. Mm-hmm. I, I think that they haven't obviously gotten a whole a, a good grip on their infrastructure. You mean the parking, the traffic is you know um, is it, going to be something they have to deal with. But you know, I have a lot of faith in, in the new mayor Ken Walsh. I mean, I, I think he's trying to drill down on it. You know, mm-hmm. but I, but I but I really think it's a you know, some big tech companies are moving in. It's a great place for, for, for the arts. Yeah. And I would think it's a great place for WMNF mm-hmm. because now it's a, it's a really cool, it's a cool little bastion of, you know, I don't know what everybody's politics are, but it's just a nice little spot of of, of, of congenial getting along and, and uh, and uh, I really like Saint.
1: And you Pete. recently moved back to Saint Pete, right? I mean, well, I was living on Saint
2: Pete Beach for the yeah. last twenty years. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm a beach guy, and uh, yeah, I just moved a month ago into the you know the west side of Saint Pete, uh, and where I grew up. I mean, I, I I'm an, I'm in my house now is you know three three blocks away from where I w- grew up in high school, and the guy who lives across the street is my best friend from high school. Wow, and that's crazy! It's like a return, you know.
0: Yeah, and, and, you know, there's some people, I've lived here for, um, how long have I lived here now? Over 40 years. Yeah. And, um, I really like the transformation that I've seen. I, I'm not sure how much I want it to keep going. How huge I want right. us to get, you know. I'm, i I'm, i i I'd like now that we have lots of good entertainment. Where it's becoming more walkable. St. Pete is super walkable and bikeable. Restaurants. I mean, great restaurants. restaurants. We have, yeah.
2: You just to have to go over to Tampa. Now it's there, there's great right. restaurants here. I don't like what they've done to First <laughs> and, to Avenue South and North, using that bus lane. Now it's it's kind of congested, but I don't have to do it. I don't commute there anymore, so I don't care.
0: <laughs> um, we have an email. I want to read another email that we have from Gail Harvey um, who sends, um, ends with a little heart. She says, I enjoyed your book signing and musical friends in Sarasota at Madison's City Grill. Your book brought, brought back memories of a now-gone sailor friend that used to make trips to Jamaica and back. wonder what that's about. <laughs> His tales of adventure were really amusing. I'm pleased I purchased a signed copy of your book, and that's, oh, that's
2: from nice. Gail. Hey, Gail, thank you. I and mean, that was a, a fun event we did down there at Madison's uh, uh, Roger Bartlett was playing. Roger Bartlett was Jimmy Buffett's first uh, lead guitar player. Wow! So he played while I signed books. I did a song with Roger, but uh, uh, you know, I, you know, he's just a great character and a great player. And 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 to it was really fitting to have one of the original Coral Reefers.
1: I'll bet. So we've only got a few more minutes left, and okay. I don't want you to uh, leave before we talk a little bit about your dear friend John Prine. Um, who mm. lived for many years in, in Gulfport, at least part of the year?
2: Well, he has a house there, he and, still and house he still there. has a house there, yep. and his his wife still, you know, Fiona still. To comes. me, one
1: of the greatest victims, maybe the worst thing that came out of the pandemic was losing John Prine.
2: I can I can tell you, it's it's it made COVID a reality to me. And one John, of the
1: great music moments for me was being it's band, bands on the sand and Treasure Island, yeah, watching out on the beach, the, the, the Saltwater Cowboys. The next thing you know. You're introducing John Prine.
2: John comes up, yeah. We, I mean, he's done that for a few times over Kitiki and uh, you know, John, uh, we've been dear friends for many years. Uh, I opened for John Prine a couple times, but a memorable one. I opened for John Prine uh, in Tampa Theater when the, the night hmm. my son was born. Wow, who, Who's named John? Ah, John has a son named Tommy too. So, uh, but uh, <laughs> you guys but were close. I, I, I he's a very dear friend. I was at his wedding, and we, you know. We, I've watched his sons, you know, be born and and grow up, and and now Tommy Prime's out on the road. He's he's got the same edge to him as his dad. And I I I just uh, did a um, I promoted a concert for him at the Hideaway uh, in December. Oh, and his first uh, his first tour, and so I jumped on it. And, and how
1: did you meet John Prime?
2: I think I met him through Joe Nuzo so long ago.
1: Joe Nuzo, also in your book, and very yeah, Brief famous surf shop guy. Yep. Yeah. One of the great characters of the Pinellas Beaches. Yeah, he introduced Sunco me. Coast Surf Shop.
2: Yeah, he introduced me to Buffett too. Uh, you know, Joe, he just recently passed away, and uh, you know that,
1: that. So I saw you a couple times at uh, the Katiki these uh, yeah. annual uh, shows you used to do, and of course uh, there were always whispers in the neighborhood: John Pine might show up. Yeah. <laughs> John Klein might be here tonight. I'm like, how do you know that? Well, he's been here before. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Is John coming? I, I used to get those texts all the time. So your
1: shows were always packed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not that they weren't going there for Believe you, too, me, Tom In the hit. old days, he used but, to say, is Jimmy Buffett showing up? But, of course, you, you would show up sometimes for, you know, uh, Corn Fused on Sunday uh, Oh, yeah, afternoon. my favorite. They're still going. So how can uh, folks uh, see the Well, I'll tell doubles? you what.
2: We are playing. You know, there, There's going to be the 50th anniversary of Shadrach's uh, <laughs> Pesach down one in of the great Grill. beach bars oh, wow, still around, okay. and, and one of the places where the Steen Hatchy Seven guys would always hang out. <laughs> it's kind of—it's going to be kind of a smuggler's theme. They're closing off the whole block, and they've asked our band to play and talk to the guys. We're all going to do it. That means we have to rehearse. They're going
1: to be—are the Steen Hatchy uh, Seven going to be there?
2: You know, you never know. <laughs> if, I can, if I can drag Steve Lamb out, I will. Um, when is that? That's October eighth. It's a Saturday night. Okay. Uh, We might play before then. Uh, You know, we we skipped our annual thing at Katiki this year. You know, the last year was COVID, and this year was, you know, we just didn't do it. Um, but we'll we'll start again next January, but we, we, we might do it like in August or something. While I'm talking to the guys now. That but for like sure one. October 8th, so come yeah, on out. Yeah,
1: because you've still got a really uh, a great band. They're still tight. They're still playing great. Dennis Wallace is your guitar player. Hey, and Lenny
2: Austin, a guitar player. Yeah. Tom Kennedy.
1: Great, uh, great mean, musicians. That band is only as
2: good as its drummer,
1: and he's the best. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for a word about the drummers.
0: Um, we had somebody who wanted us to repeat who our guest is. It's Tom Gribben and the name of the the book is uh, The Last Florida Boy.
1: Available wherever you buy your books.
0: On Amazon or or at the bookstore.
1: bookstore. Tom Bolo Books has it. Yeah, there. Tom Bolo.
2: We did a thing out there. And also, you can go online, thelastfloridaboy.com and order it directly. And if you order it, thelastfloridaboy.com, it's the same cost. It doesn't cost any more. But the publishers here in town, and I can uh, autograph the book for you. When you make the order, you just tell me what you want to write.
0: And then um, we'll, maybe we'll see um, a Netflix series made out of this.
2: I'm, that's what we're working on it right now. It seems like
1: it's just made to order for them. I, I mean, th- this this kind of a little more, we have some distance now between uh, then and today. And, yeah. And it does seem like a much more kind of romantic uh, period, it's sort of like the Rum Runner days of the of exactly. prohibition. Exactly,
0: exactly. Well, and, and Florida, of course, is super hot right now, St. Pete, Tampa area, so... It'd be a great to have another show based Absolutely. here.
2: Absolutely, and, and you know they tell me the tax advantages for making a movie here are now really in our favor, and so a lot of these movie makers are coming down here. Uh, they were here for the sunscreen music um, movie festival and and reached out to me, and I talked to a couple of them. So but if Netflix I have this makes one,
1: the movie, the series, let's do it in Florida.
2: Yes. Yes. Why not?
1: Why not?
0: All right. Well, Tom, thanks for being with us today.
2: Thank you for having me. This has really been brings w- back great. We could memories. go on for
1: a couple more hours. Yeah, we could.
0: But <laughs> I might hang out. Up next is the NPR news, followed by Harrison Nash, and he will be marking um, Mental Health Awareness Month, which is this May. He will also be marking this date in 1854 when the Lincoln Black College was founded in Pennsylvania. The day after tomorrow, twenty-six, is Miles Davis's birthday, so Harrison will be marking that as as well as um, the two year anniversary of